Well, hey friends, today is a pretty exciting day and I am so pumped that you're here for it because we are starting a brand new journey and we are going to be uh, over the coming months journeying into and through Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Now, even if you have no church background at all, maybe you don't count yourself to be a religious person or a Christian, there are going to be things that Jesus says in this address that you're going to find familiar, things that you have heard in other places, because in this sermon are some of Jesus's most recognizable and famous words. And even more than that, part of what makes this so powerful and so important for us and so exciting for me is that in the Sermon on the Mount, we have kind of a Cliff Notes version of what Jesus was about. Like we have this highly concentrated, distilled version of Jesus's theology in one place. Like if you want to know what Jesus was about and what his message was and what his vision for life and the kingdom of God and what God is up to in this world in one place, that is exactly what you have in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were to take the rest of Jesus's life, his parables, his miracles, his teachable moments, uh, the moments of conflict when he squares off with somebody uh, in a negative way, others who he honors in a positive way, all of these things in effect are Jesus putting flesh on what we are going to dig into and read here. John Mark Comer is a pastor in the Pacific Northwest, and you'll probably hear me quote him again somewhere along the way, because I really like this guy, but this is how he describes Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's manifesto for a whole new way to be human in the in-breaking reality of the kingdom of God. Now that is a mouthful, but I love what he has to say here. And I love that word manifesto because that is exactly what this is. This is Jesus's manifesto in one place. So there's a lot for us here. Another really cool thing about the Sermon on the Mount that I want to just mention on the front end, because I want us to enter in thinking about it this way, is that it is, it is written and presented in such a way as to be memorized, as to be internalized and brought with us. You know, if you remember, like in Jesus's time and in the early church, like people didn't walk around with copies of the Bible in their hand. Most churches didn't have a copy of the Bible. Like they had bits and pieces and they would share it around. But for the most part, it was an oral tradition, right? And so these words have been crafted in Jesus's genius in such a way as to be memorized and internalized. And so if I'm showing all my cards, my hope and prayer for us in the coming months is that these words would become a part of us that we would maybe memorize those or at least return to them, you know, on good days, bad days, good season, bad season, uh, seasons of opportunity, seasons of challenge. And in doing so, that these words really, to use the biblical language, that we would hide them in our hearts and let them read us with the goal, of course, to become more like Jesus, to be with him, to become more like him, and in time to, to do uh, increasingly the kinds of things that Jesus did, which is the way we define uh, discipleship here. So so as we get ready to do this, before we open the text, I think it's really important for us to reflect honestly about the way we come to the text. Because none of us come to the text objectively, right? We all bring our experiences, our background, our culture, our biases, all these things to the text. And there are some people in this world for which what Jesus has to say, they just seem to intuitively understand. Uh, it's like their hearts are postured to get it. And when Jesus starts talking about the kingdom, they're dialed in and it makes sense to them. 
But then there are people for whom it's much harder. Now, people to whom it makes sense, for example, are people like children would be one. Another group of people who seem to intuitively get what Jesus is talking about are the poor. Now, I don't know where you find yourself, uh, but for most of us on the ground here in Knoxville anyway, uh, most of us are not children and most of us are not impoverished. Uh, I would imagine most people hearing this come from a similar background, and that is we are a part of the Western world, many of us a part of the United States. And just so you know, it is for people like us that we, we have the hardest time hearing and understanding what Jesus is getting at. Because we have to understand, when we hear these words, we don't hear them like Jesus's contemporaries did. Uh, like Jesus's friends, the people he grew up with, uh, people who were Jewish. We don't, we don't come to this text as Jews. We come to this text as Romans, uh, as the Romans, right? Because for many of us, those of us at least who are part of the U.S., we come from a part of a, a country who prides itself on having the most guns, the biggest bombs, uh, the highest, we are the highest spender on national defense in the world, I believe, part of one of the largest empires in the world at this particular point in human history. We are amongst the most wealthy people in the world, statistically, and many of us uh, are part of this modern phenomena called the middle class, which means, amongst other things, that we can afford a certain level of comfort, safety, security, uh, luxuries, and all of these things are, are barriers to us understanding Jesus because we have to remember that these words are being spoken by a poor, homeless Jewish rabbi whose people were being oppressed and taxed to death by Rome, an empire, much like the U.S. And the message is about how God is turning everything upside down, right? And so I, I mention all that because it's so important for us to recognize this and not to feel bad about it because honestly, m just about none of us had anything to do with any of those things. It's just where we find ourselves, but it will help us make sense as to why some of the things that Jesus is going to say might make us profoundly uncomfortable. And even more than that, at times, it, some of the things he has to share, it helps us understand why maybe just maybe it doesn't even sound like good news. Right. And so to understand what Jesus is getting and to let God do what he wants to do in us, it's going to require that we understand where we find ourselves in the world and where we hear those words to enter into the shoes of others and practice some empathy and to do some serious self-reflection, which is going to take some courage to really ask what maybe just maybe is God inviting us into in this and here's the thing, if you're willing to do that, I think this is going to be uh, a really powerful journey and potentially a transformational journey. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, it's going to give you fair warning, Jesus brings the heat. He is going to challenge our assumptions. He's going to push back on what we thought to be true. He's going to paint a picture of God and what he is up to in the world that is not what we expected. He's going to open fire on religious bigotry. He's going to open the door to people that were once thought undeserving. He's going to expose some stuff in us that's not going to be pretty. And then he, he's going to invite us into the kingdom anyway. And he's going to invite us into an entirely new way of being human and to reorient our, ourselves and our lives around those things as we invite others around the table of the Lamb. So all that to say, I think it's going to be a ride. And I'm so excited to see what God's going to do. So if you're game for it, let's do it. Let's crack open this ancient text that we're told is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword 
and let God open us up and see what the Spirit wants to do. That sound good? All right, let's go. All right, so the Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew chapter 5, and we are going to actually back up a few verses to give us some context for what we're reading here and what's happening when Jesus stands up and says these words. This is what we read, chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering with severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Now get this, large crowds, all right, let's make a note of that, from Galilee, let's make a note of that, the Decapolis, let's make a note of that, uh, in fact, okay, let's just hold on a second, so we got to get the picture here, all right, we read that large crowds are gathering, and one of the keys to understanding the Sermon on the Mount is that large crowds are gathering to hear Jesus, right, so this is not this is not an upper room conversation with Jesus's green berets, right? His special forces, <laughs> as if as if his inner circle was really ever that in his lifetime. Uh, that's not what's going on here, right? This is not an internal conversation. There are large crowds from various backgrounds that are all coming to hear this man, Jesus. They're drawn to his words. They're drawn to what he has to say. And they're from all over the place. And then we're told at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, that the crowds were amazed at his teaching, right? So again, not a small group. This is a big, big crowd. Secondly, we're given a picture of where some of this crowd comes from. One of those places we're told is the Decapolis, which means literally the 10 cities, right? Now this is an area, it's a Greek area that was settled by Alexander the Great. So again, get this friends. So not Jewish, not religious, not pure, not clean, not holy, don't know the Torah, not following the commands of scripture, okay? They are there. Large crowds from Galilee, very Jewish area. The Decapolis, very Greek, very non-Jewish area. Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. All right, so you have got this hodgepodge of humanity that are all gathering around this person of Jesus. So you need to think less Fargo. If you've seen the show, uh, seen the movie. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Don't you bet you don't you know? Uh, all white, all Scandinavian, mostly Catholic, right? That's that's where I'm from. I'm from the Arctic northern tundra. Think less Fargo. Think more Hollywood Boulevard on a Saturday, right? You've got all kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of beliefs, all over the spiritual spectrum. And get this, there would have been people, some of them in Jesus's own inner circle who had been taught from birth that you don't go near those people. You have absolutely no contact with those people. But now, thanks to Jesus, they're all mixed in the same crowd. I love that about Jesus. And that's the context for what we're about to read, all right? And so I'm gonna begin, Matthew 5. Open up my uh, physical analog Bible here, and here's what we read. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, so you got that? Can we close this out in prayer? Some nice music. Uh, man, right? I got a joke because it's a bit confusing, isn't it? I mean, it. what Jesus is saying here, it seems to stand in contrast to everything that we know about how the world works, about who gets ahead and who has land and who has power and who has say-so and who makes the rules, right? These are strange. They're, they're counterintuitive. And at first glance, some of them may not even seem to make sense, right? Because, I mean, we know the poor in spirit don't get ahead in the game, generally speaking. Like mourning and feeling lost and grieving does not feel like a blessed experience. The meek don't inherit the earth, at least not at the same rate as trust fund babies of billionaire parents do, <laughs> you know? And, and so this is where I think we need to be very careful when it comes to the Beatitudes in particular. And I think this is where we really need to lean in because I think there are two big risks that we have to be so careful of when, when we're reading the Beatitudes. And the first risk is this. We write Jesus off. Right? Can I just say that? Like, we dismiss what he's saying. Like, we ignore him. Right? We think, well, he couldn't have really meant that. Right? Like, there's got to be something else. It's got to be poetry, shock value, you know, uh, maybe a communication device to get attention, a string of, I don't know, philosophical moral niceties. That's all, because certainly he can't be serious. And, and in some Christian circles throughout Christian history, they, they've really gone to great lengths to try to dismiss this and just write it off as, you know, something that maybe is just there to show us how, fall, how, how far we fall short and how much we need grace. But again, you got to remember, Jesus doesn't frame it that way at all. There's nothing that's in the text that would lead us to believe that he doesn't mean what he says. This is his manifesto. This is consistent with so many of the other things, everything else that he says and does and lives and fleshes out for us. So hear me here. We got to get this. The Beatitudes are supposed to be a shock to our system. They are supposed to, if we take them seriously, they're supposed to turn our world upside down. They should cause us to stop and do a gut check. And, and if they don't, if they don't, chances are we're missing what Jesus is saying here. I love this quote by Brian Zond. He writes this, the Beatitudes are deliberately designed to shock us. If we're not shocked by the Beatitudes, it's only because we've obtained them with a patronizing sentimentality. And being sentimental about Jesus is a religious way of ignoring Jesus. Too often the Beatitudes are set aside into a category of nice things that Jesus said that I don't really understand. Right? So what do we do? We stick them on a blanket. We throw them on a coffee mug or a t-shirt, you know, or in a framed photo. And, and we hardly give them another thought other than maybe, oh, that Jesus, he's got such a great way with, man, he's got such a way with words, doesn't he? Like, I have no idea what he's saying, but man, what a guy, right? 
But here's the thing, friends. Again, Jesus wasn't spouting off poetry, and he wasn't showing off his oratory skills when he stood up on that mount. And he certainly didn't intend to provide content for the Christian trinket industry. He was making an announcement. He was making an announcement. He was, he was cutting history in two. He was announcing that God's kingdom is at hand. It is breaking into the whole of creation in new and transformational ways. And that the kingdom would look nothing like the kingdoms of this world. And I think that's important for us to get. And this is why it should be shocking to our system. Because God's kingdom and the kingdoms of this world, the ones that we swim in every day, the ones that we were grown up and formed in, the one that gives you and I message after message on our smartphones and newsfeed that is reinforced over and over throughout the day, those two kingdoms are fundamentally opposed to each other. They look nothing alike. They value different things. They honor different people. They function in opposite ways. God's kingdom is the yin to the kingdoms of this world's yang. They are antithetical to each other. So when Jesus stands up on that mountain and he announces that God's kingdom is at hand, it is, it is launching into the world. It's starting. And this is what it's going to look like. He is challenging the fundamental assumptions of everybody in that crowd. And he is challenging our fundamental assumptions as well. And these words have been so shocking to the human psyche that for two millennia, many have labored to change what Jesus said. Because here's the thing, if we were to write the Beatitudes based on how we live and how the world works, I think it might sound something like this. Blessed are the suburbanites, for theirs are the comforts of the middle class. Blessed are those with new phones and the latest tech, for they shall be spared the perils of having no Wi-Fi. Blessed are the educated and hardworking, for they deserve to enjoy the fruit of their labor. Blessed are those who get even, for they will have the last laugh. Blessed are those with the most guns, the biggest bombs, and the largest army, for they will inherit what's left of the earth. And blessed are the Americans, for they are number one. Amen. Now, I'm going to venture to guess you're not going to throw that on your refrigerator, but come on now. Like, isn't that pretty close to what we see ended up getting fleshed out and pursued all the time among us? Like, how much of that is common belief amongst our friends, our peers, maybe ourselves. In fact, if you want to hear just how revolutionary and subversive Jesus's words are, like you want to hear how different the kingdom of God is to the ones of this world, then listen to this. I'm going to read another version of the Beatitudes uh, that have been rewritten essentially to, to say just the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. And you tell me if these don't ring true. Blessed are the self-sufficient and self-reliant and independent. Blessed are those who have fun, enjoyable, pain-free lives. Blessed are those who have made a name for themselves. Blessed are those with the best resumes. Blessed are those who reward hard work, oppose laziness, and judge people only by their merits. Blessed are those who are only mildly committed to their religion. Blessed are those who mind their own business. Blessed are those whom everyone likes. Amen. You feel that in your gut? Like, are you feeling what I'm feeling? I mean, doesn't that sound a lot like us and what we typically believe to be true if we're really, really honest? Like, aren't those, aren't those the things that we often 
celebrate and strive for. Uh, I know me, apart from Jesus, that is exactly what I want and strive for in the flesh. And friends, this is where it gets real. It, this is literally the opposite of what Jesus is saying the kingdom of God looks like, right? So it is meant to be shocking. It's meant to be earth shattering, especially for us Westerners and all that we enjoy. So we had better listen and lean in. We had better. What we cannot do, what we cannot do is tuck the earth shattering pronouncement of Matthew 5 nicely into the housewares department of our local Christian bookstore. Nor can we tame Jesus or his message. Jesus won't let you. And he won't let me. So we must allow the Beatitudes to be as shocking and challenging, counterintuitive, upturning, upsetting, upending as they truly are. And they are. That's the first risk. The second risk, it's, it's as every bit as tempting and dangerous. And I think this is the risk, particularly for those of us who have a religious background. And it's this. We take the Beatitudes and we turn them into another set of religious laws to follow. Like we turn them into a list of commands, right? And so we start to treat Jesus' words like this, like, okay, be poor in spirit, right? Go and be a mournful, grieving person, right? Go and be meek. <laughs> That's what we religious people do. We're very, very good at this. Like we, we see, and this might be the American part of us, for those of us who are from the States, is we're wired for performance, and so we're always trying to turn Christianity and the way of Jesus into a list of do's and don'ts, like as if we're going to earn a spot at the table of grace, right? And even for those who, are, who know, like, no, I'm saved by grace through faith. It's like the way we behave, though, is like it's grace on the front end and works on the back end. Like, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, for, for adopting me into your sonship, for saving me from my sins. Uh, now let me show you and prove to you that it was worth the sacrifice you know, or prove to you that I deserve a seat at the table. And this is what we take, the, we do with the Beatitudes. We take them and we start to treat them like commandments. All right, now hold on though. Friends, listen, this is not what Jesus is doing here. You will not find that in the text. The Beatitudes contain no imperatives whatsoever. These are not commandments. This is not how you earn your way into the kingdom of God. Now, there's some hard stuff that's coming later. There will be some commands, but they come later. That is not how the Sermon on the Mount begins. That is not what the Beatitudes are. The Beatitudes are an announcement. He's not saying this is how you earn your way into the kingdom. Now get to work. <laughs> no, he's saying, friends, this is what the kingdom looks like. These are the kinds of people who are going to be there. These are the kinds of people who are going to find themselves in the kinds of people for whom the arrival of the kingdom of God is going to be very, very good news. And so for those of us who are followers of Jesus as kingdom people, what this means for us is that as we follow after Jesus and we're formed in the way of Jesus, our lives and our hearts become formed in alignment with the heart of the Father. And these are the kinds of people that we too will begin to care more and more about. We will see them. We will begin to listen to them, to seek to serve them and honor them. Why? Because they deserve it? No, that's not in there. Because they mean so much to our heavenly father. It's like Jesus is saying, listen, this is what the kingdom looks like. These are some of the kinds of people that are going to be there. They're going to be so blessed by the arrival of the kingdom. 
And listen, wherever you see these kinds of people being loved and served and heard and seen and honored and lifted up, you can know that I'm in your midst. That's one. If you've seen the the chosen, it's one of the things I love when Jesus is mulling on the beatitudes and sharing them with Matthew for the first time. You know, and Matt he shares these things. Matthew says, like, how is this a map? And that's how he refers to it. It's a map. And that's essentially exactly what Jesus says, right? Is that my people champion in these champion these people. My people care about these people. They serve and honor these people. They don't walk over them or walk on them. They don't operate the way the kingdoms of this world does. They they operate in a subversive kingdom-like way. And wherever you see that happening, you can know that I am there. That's what the church is, or at least it's what it's meant to be. It's an outpost of the kingdom. And one day, all those little previews of what is to come, all those little subversive communities of refuge that you see here that are contending for the overlooked and the downtrodden, one day, that reality and those communities are going to cover the entire earth. But it's like he's saying in the same breath, don't you dare get the order mixed up, though. Don't you dare take this announcement, this which is good news, and make them into moral commandments that are required to get in. No, this is announcement. I want you to know you'll never believe who's going to be in. It defies the values of this world. You'll never believe who's on top in the kingdom of God. It's the people who are on the bottom right now, right? You're never going to believe who's being honored and served and loved in the kingdom in mind-boggling ways. It's those people that are really bad at being good. Right? It's those people who have lost everything and find themselves in the ashes. It's the destitute, the brokenhearted, the failures, the burnouts, the flameouts, the down and outs. Theirs is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is available to them. It's falling on them. It's crashing into earth where they are. I love what the scholar Frederick Dale Bruner says about them and about what this word blessed is really getting at. He says, when Jesus makes the statement, blessed are you, poor in spirit, in effect, Jesus is saying, God's blessing on you, poor in spirit, for God is on your side. In one fail swoop, God is in no uncertain terms to the beat up, the beaten down, the underperforming, the powerless saying, look, I am for you. I am on your side. Right, or as another version puts it, blessed are those who are bad at being spiritual. Fortunate are the losers, the pathetic, the depraved, the lame, the spiritual zeros, because God is on your side. He's for you. And I think there's this part of us. Maybe it's the American part of us or the religious part of us, the hyper-achieving part of us where our antennas go up and we want to know why. Why? What is it about being bad at being spiritual or whatever that warrants the blessing of God? Why? 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 And here's the thing, friends. Jesus doesn't give us much of an answer other than to say, because apparently God is like this. Apparently, this is who he is. This is what God is like. I mean, think about the, the life of Jesus, right? Where we're getting to see divinity with skin on, the incarnation, God in the flesh, in our midst. Time and time again, story after story, we find, 
we find Jesus stepping in and blessing and loving and showing grace and favor and mercy to people who don't deserve it. All right, Luke 14, we read, Blessed are those who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. One of my favorite metaphors of heaven, of kingdom coming on earth. And, and if you remember, there's this big feast that is thrown in this story that Jesus tells, and everyone who is invited bails. They all have an excuse to not show up. And so what does the man do? He goes out into the streets and he invites everyone. He's pulling them from every corner, every nook and cranny, scooping them off the streets because his table is going to be full. His feast is going to be enjoyed. His party is going to be packed. Why? <laughs> why does the man do this? Why, why does he throw a great bank, banquet in the first place? Like, what's the occasion? <laughs> we don't know. Apparently, he's just like that. Or chapter 17, Jesus is walking through Jerusalem and 10 lepers approach him from a distance and they begin to cry out to him, Jesus, master, have pity on us. And Jesus heals them knowing full well only one is going to come back and say thank you. The other nine are going to split. Why? Why does Jesus do that? Why does he heal the lepers knowing that what he knows? We don't know. Apparently, he's just like that. Or chapter 19, very famous story, Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus' his people are being taxed to death by Rome. And when I say taxed to death, I mean literally to death. Many, many people are starving to death. Zacchaeus is one of the few who has gotten rich uh, doling out the, uh, the desires of Rome, right? He's hated. He's a tax collector. And he's up in a tree trying to get a, just a glance at Jesus. And Jesus looks up and he sees him. And says to him, I got to go to your house today. Why? And of course he does. And he eats with all Zacchaeus's super center friends. Why? Why does Jesus need to stay at the house of someone like this and dine with people like that? Apparently, friends, apparently he's just like that. Why? 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 And we find endlessly favor, grace, fellowship embrace. Why? I once heard a pastor share this illustration many years ago, and it's just stuck with me. It's about the documentary Man on Wire. And if you haven't seen it, it's well worth your time. And the story is of a man, this French man, who one day on the television sees a picture of the Twin Towers in New York City while they were still there. And he sees them, and he's kind of a circus performer, eccentric personality. He sees those two buildings, and he decides, I need to tightrope walk between those two buildings. I need to do this. And the documentary follows the journey of this guy who assembles a team, begins making plans, uh, goes to New York City, sneaks in one of the towers at night. Uh, they end up shooting an arrow from one side to the other side. They're almost caught several times. But they get that tightrope pulled tight, and in the morning, this man walks out onto the rope. Right? And New York City, around the Twin Towers anyway, stops. Traffic comes to a halt. Everybody's looking up. This is before smartphones, so they didn't have their phones out. They would if they had them then. But everybody is looking into the sky with their jaws dropped open, watching this guy go back and forth on this tightrope wire. And friends, he just plays. The, the video footage is incredible. He lies down at one point. Uh, police are stationed at both sides trying to coax him off the rope. And this man goes back and forth eight times. 
just playing. It's an incredible thing to watch. Well, eventually, of course, he does come off the rope. He's immediately arrested. And before he's taken in and put in prison, he's being uh, he's in this side room where some of the media is able to sneak in and catch him before he's, he's put behind bars. And they put a microphone in his face and everybody wants to know the question. They're like, why would you do this? <laughs> why would you do something like this? And this Frenchman, Petit is his name, he goes, why? 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 That is an American question, why? There is no why. <laughs> Which I love. Uh, why? What an American question, why? Why? To a large crowd, to this hodgepodge of, of humanity from all these different backgrounds, people with different worldviews and different religious views and gods and practices, why does Jesus announce the blessing of God is yours? Why? Well, friends, I don't know. It doesn't really say other than that apparently God is like that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those without an ounce of religion, the pathetic. Blessed are those who haven't kept the covenant, who haven't walked the line, who don't believe all the right things, to the endlessly screwed up in a litany of ways, to all those God says, God is on your side. God has saved you a place at the table of grace. The door is open if you want it. There's a seat for you at the table if you want it. The feast is ready. Come in on and take a seat. And friends, I think the deeper that we enter into the message of the gospel, which is the message of the kingdom, Jesus's message, the more this heart should shape and reshape the way we see ourselves and everyone around us. May it be so. Grace and peace, friends. <laughs>